As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. to the latest edition of the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Bruce Feldman, joined as always by my colleague from the Athletics, Stuart Mandel. Stu, we have a ton to talk about. A lot of our stories actually are, uh, are I think, very timely right now. We're going to get to a few things. So in a minute, we will talk about... Uh, we just finished the draft, Stu, and now all of a sudden everyone's running with these way, way, way too early mock drafts for 2022 um but let's talk about something else that's not way too early but kind of early and it is your updated top 25 so what has changed for you what what do the readers need to see that they didn't see or what did you learn that you were maybe sketchy on three months ago first of all we want to make sure everybody can read these articles, right? So if you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, use our promo code, theathletic.com slash theaudible, $3.99 a month. Bruce, the coffee you're drinking right now probably costs more than $3.99, right? I just realized, you. Were, yeah, I'm on Zoom. I was like, how does he know I'm drinking coffee right now? <laughs> I see that coffee bean logo. I bet that costs more than a monthly, than one month of all these great articles, of which we're only going to be talking about a, even just a just a small sampling of. So for the spring top 25, I mean, the first thing I want to point out is with all these super seniors coming back, with all these uh, players who used their, their free year of eligibility from last year, I'm fascinated to see the effect it has because I'm, as I'm, uh, you know, in a typical year, as you're looking at like returning starters, you know, most teams have somewhere between 12, you know, maybe 12 and 16 with a couple moving up to like 17. There are many teams in this uh, top 25 that return 20 starters or all but one member of their two deep. Uh, Liberty had uh, 16 seniors opt to come back. Um, You're just going to have these very unusually experienced teams. Now, that's not the case with, you know, Alabama, Georgia, uh, Ohio State. They had their usual guys turn pro early. I'm not as worried about them, but like, you know, you look at a team like Iowa State, who everybody's very high on, who I have number seven. Um, practically their whole team came back. They've got, you know, they've got a, a, a 
all conference players who took their sixth year of eligibility. So uh, that's really cool. Um, I know everybody's going to say, oh, it's the same five teams at the top, but I did give a lot of thought to the order. And I know you're a Georgia skeptic. I know you're a Kirby Smart skeptic, but I ended up putting them number two behind Alabama uh, because we know how talented Georgia is. You saw it reflected in the NFL draft uh, this past weekend. I noticed you and Max Olson did your transfer portal rankings and several of the highest rated guys are Georgia castoffs. So they recruit national championship caliber talent. They haven't gotten there yet because they haven't had the quarterback. I guess they had Justin Fields, but they let him go. JT Daniels comes in, starts the last four games of last season. Their offense got much better. He was the, you know, Max did his uh, most efficient returning passers. JT Daniels, number one in the whole country. So um, I do think they'll be very good on offense this year, even with George Pickens injured. And they're always pretty good on defense. They led the SEC last year in defense. So, yeah, uh, I have Georgia ahead of ahead of Clemson, who they're going to play in the first game, ahead of Ohio State, who has some reloading to do. Um, that's probably the he- headline in terms of the, the playoff contenders. Let me ask you a team that's interesting to me most. Um, you have Oklahoma number three, which is obviously not low. Uh, there's a lot of buzz about Spencer Rattler. I, I think he had his moments where he played well. He had his moments where he didn't play so well in his first year as a starter. I think a lot of uh, a lot of the brewing hype, and we'll get to the 2022 mock draft stuff later on, but I think a lot of that has to do with Lincoln Riley and Lincoln Riley's system, what he's developed. Also, they do have a really deep group of receivers there. Um you know, the guy who led, who was, we had ranked as the number one impact transfer in the country this year is going to, is at Oklahoma. And that is former Tennessee running back, Eric Gray. Uh, I had talked to coaches who were at OU and also coaches who worked with him at Tennessee, who spoke glowingly about Eric Gray um, as a, as a big impact guy. Now the question is, and this is where I want to go to it with you, um, they lost Ronnie Perkins, who was a really good defensive player when he was in the lineup last year. They, they have been, they were bad on defense for a long time. Alex Grinch gets there in the last two years. They have gotten a lot better. Question I have for you is, I'm not saying, can they get to the playoff? We've seen them get to the playoff. Does Spencer Rattler need to be Heisman winning Spencer Rattler like Baker like Kyler Murray for them to have any hope of winning a national title? Or do you think the gap with them is close enough where they have a real shot to win the national title? You know, it's interesting because I think people get these impressions of a team or a conference, and then it takes a long time for them to acknowledge that something's changed. And it's, it's absolutely right. Oklahoma's defense, which was one of the, I mean, they, they made the playoff in 2018 with one of the worst defenses in the country. Um, you know, and obviously the next year, what happened against LSU in the semi. But yes, they were t- number 26 in the country last year. Ronnie Perkins was a big part of that. That's not an insignificant loss. But I mean, for the most part, you're talking, I mean, I believe he's one of only two starters they lost from that defense. So I think they'll be very good on defense. Are they going to be um, elite? You know, remains to be seen. I think Who's the lead on defense anymore, Stu? Well, that's that's what I was just about to say. I think the formula for winning a national championship has like changed. LSU wasn't LSU wasn't a lead on defense. Alabama uh, wasn't a lead. Alabama on defense. wasn't a lead on defense, right? The formula has changed. It used it used to be 
if you were talking about who's going to win the national championship this year, you'd look for the team that has the best defense and a decent, you know, experienced quarterback. I think now, as I looked, you know, as I'm doing these rankings, I'm looking primarily at who's going to have the most explosive offense. And certainly I think we can, we can count on Oklahoma to have that. I do think the hype, the Spencer Rattler, number one pick 2022 is premature. He was kind of a work in progress last year. He was a big time recruit. I get that. Um, I don't think he has to be Kyler Murray or Baker Mayfield, but he has to be pretty good, but you know, they've got a lot of weapons around him and you're right. I mean, that for, for you guys to have uh, Eric Gray as the number one transfer uh, in the country. And remember they've got Kennedy Brooks coming back who opted out last season, who, who himself is a stud running back. Um, they're going to be able to do a lot on offense and I don't have them number one, obviously of Alabama number one, but I do think, I think this team is probably going to be more, have a, have a better chance to actually win the thing than the teams that went before where they were just kind of all offense, no defense. This team can do both. Let me ask you another team. So you had mentioned, uh, and I don't disagree with this at all, like the quarterbacks and what they can do offensively. So you have Texas A&M number six, and they have two terrific running backs. They do have to replace much of their offensive line, and they have to replace a guy who was a starting quarterback for a long time by college standards in Kellen Mond. So, and again, they're they're in the, the toughest division. Now, you know, they do have some playmakers on defense, but that's a pretty that's a pretty big ask to play, you know, whether it's Haynes King or Zach Calzada. I've seen Zach Calzada you know, through the elite 11 process, he definitely has a strong arm, but again, you're talking about a first time starter who really hasn't played at all yet. Um, do you think a first time starter there, we know Jimbo Fisher has a good track record with developing uh, college quarterbacks. Do you think a first time starting quarterback can lead them to the playoff? Well, I think that it's not going to be that, that team, if they were to make the playoff is not going to be doing it with the, um, Joe Burrow to uh, uh, Mac Jones, Devontae Smith formula. I think Jimbo has always been, first of all, a bit more conservative on offense. I think he'll be very conservative on offense with the quarterback situation and with the fact that they've got a great backfield. Um, you know, you saw that in the, you saw a little, a little peak of that in the, uh, in the orange bowl. And then they've got a great defense, or I think they'll have a great defense. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if putting them number six, if that turns out to be too high, uh, it is around where they finished last season. But the question is like, I guess I would ask you, do you think there's another team in the sec West? That's a bigger threat to Alabama. I don't know. I really don't. We have no idea what we're getting from Auburn. Ole Miss was really good on offense. They just fired after spring their O-line coach where they were pretty good on the O-line and they were horrific on defense. I don't think Leach is going to get Mississippi State there. LSU is an intriguing team because they basically had everything that could go wrong after a national title last year. They have, you mentioned the super seniors, they have every lineman in the program back. Mm -hmm. And I actually think now they have a pretty good quarterback situation. Like if Miles Brennan is able to beat out Max Johnson, Max Johnson went into the swamp and beat Florida as a true freshman. I think he's really good. Uh, they have playmakers. They, I think they're going to be better on defense, but I don't 
like you have AM six and I'm not disagreeing with it or, or what. I don't know. Like I think LSU is like a nine win team or maybe a 10 win team, but that's what I think AM is. I think those two teams are, are nine, 10 win teams. And I'm not going to say Alabama is, is close to that being on the negative side until we see like a really, you know, everything I've heard from Bryce Young is he's going to be terrific in that offense. I just think, I know they had to flip the staff again, but they're, to me, they're still the clear favorite um, at this point. And then I think those other two teams are, are right now a notch below just because they've, one has a way to go after last year and the other one, I just think they have to replace, you know, it's, it's a, a break in a new starting quarterback for a program that's still, this is an Alabama in terms of stability wise. That's why I think it's really interesting there. Um, I think that first of all, this is just where college football is right now. There are five programs, Alabama, Georgia, Oklahoma, Ohio state, Clemson. I just read them in the order. I have them ranked. I'm not saying that's the order of like, best programs in the country, but those five, it's like, you got to rank somebody sixth. There was no question going into this exercise that those were going to be the top five teams in some order. And then you you rank the best of the rest. I have A&M, but I don't have A&M that far from LSU. I have LSU number nine, which some people might think is a big stretch given five and five last year. But like you said, it wasn't everything that could go wrong situation they did beat a very good Florida team towards the end of the season that showed me they were making progress. And now you've got 19 starters back. Um, I think, I I think they'll bounce right back, not to, not to 2019 level, but in terms of being a top 10 ish team, but that doesn't mean, I mean, if you're saying playoff contenders, Alabama and Georgia are the SEC's playoff contenders, A&M and LSU. There's a, there's a step or two down from there. Let me ask you about um, two teams that I, I think for different reasons. One, this one team I'm high, and I think I'm probably higher, a little higher on them than even you are, and I think you think you're high on them, and that is Iowa State at number seven. Uh, I think if there was ever a year where Iowa State is going to the playoff, I think this is definitely the year. They have players back on defense, a bunch of them. They're good players who played a lot. They have a talented quarterback. They have arguably the best running back in the country. They have arguably the best tight end in the country and they have a lot of experience and they're really, really well coached. So without you pretend, you know, like channeling Ari Wasserman, tell me why Iowa state with, with Matt Campbell as a head coach with everything that I listed uh, isn't going to be a playoff team. Uh, Iowa state was a top 10 team last season and they bring everybody back, everybody. Um, and I think that you're right. I think this is, if ever there was a year for Iowa State to, to pull it off, this would be that. Um, I do wonder a little bit how they will, they've always been the scrappy underdog. They will not be considered an underdog much this year, if at all, other than when they play Oklahoma, how they'll handle that, that pressure. Um, and also, I mean, let's not forget, like they did lose to Louisiana early last season. They have been a team under Matt Campbell that often drops a game early to a team they probably shouldn't lose to. And I think that's a reflection of, like you said, like this is not a team full of four and five stars. They don't Look, have- Urban Meyer, great coach. He had a tendency to lose to teams that he shouldn't, you know, every once in a while too. It's not, that's, that's not just, you don't, I feel like that's a, kind of an unfair ding. Of- well, I think it's, 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 they don't have that much of a margin for error um, because they aren't, you know, because they're not, you know, they, 
for, and then also let's not forget like last year's Iowa state team didn't play Iowa. Iowa is going to be pretty good. I think uh, they're going to, so it's not just, it's not a one game season for them, right? It's not just, well, beat Oklahoma and you'll go to the playoff. They'll play Iowa. I'm not really sure who, if Texas, you know, I have them 15th, whether they'll actually be that kind of team. I didn't end up including either TCU or Oklahoma state, but I could see them rising up. I guess I'm saying, I think, you know, the big 12 took a lot of flack this, this past weekend because they didn't have any first round picks and rightfully so. But part of that is that a lot of their guys that might've been drafted came back. So it could be a little bit tougher for Iowa state this year than it was last year. Fair enough. And they do have to go to Oklahoma. Um, and, you know, they have to play West Virginia, who I think is a year away on the road. Beyond that, I think their toughest games, Oklahoma State, uh, TCU, and Texas are all in Ames, but as, as well as the Hawkeyes. So I think college football fans in general would be thrilled if Iowa State could pull it off. Everybody's so sick of the same teams over and over again. And, you know, this wouldn't be like uh, – What's an example? Like a Wisconsin making it for the first time. This would be Iowa State that has not ever remotely uh, had a, a team contend for the national championship. Yeah, I, I mean, look, I just the fact that that uh, I remember looking at just looking at their schedule just now when I was just kind of seeing who they play where is like kind of a happy place to go. Okay, we're not that far away from the season and back to that. Um, all right, the other team I wanted to ask you about where I think you're higher on them than probably some are. Um, and our friend Mark Schleibob did a top 25 at, at uh, ESPN.com around the same time you did. And you guys differ wildly on Miami. Um, I, in the piece Max and I did about the top transfers, there are a bunch of Miami guys high on it, including the number two guy, Tyreek Stevenson, who is a big, physical, fast cornerback who goes into what should be a pretty good secondary because I know they're really high on the safeties they've got. So De'Eric King back after that injury, uh, Charleston Rambo, former Oklahoma receiver has looked really good at, at Miami. Their offensive line has more depth than it has had in, I don't know, probably 15 years. So you have them number 11. Um, what do you think it takes for them to compete with Clemson and to be a legit threat to actually win the ACC. Uh, Miami is the one I'm taking the most flack for in the comment section. And I get it. People feel like they get overhyped all the time and they weren't bad last year. I think one game. They were bad against North Carolina. Yeah. One just debacle of a game made everybody feel like the rest of it was, was a sham. Um, But you know, I think I didn't have them this high in the in the one in January. Like you said, that you know, transfers are going to be a big. Uh, I mean, this is this is the sport now, right? Like, who made the best? Like, I would say Miami had the best free agency uh, uh, off season in terms of upgrading at specifically the spots they needed to upgrade at the most um, to compete with Clemson. Um, going to have to get a lot better on defense. If you watched that game last year, um, it was kind of a mismatch. In fact, that was, you know, by far, I think by far De'Ara King's worst game. So I don't, I mean, to be honest, I don't, I don't think they are on Clemson's level, um, but I think they could have their best, their best team in a while. I mean, that 2017 team that went, I think nine and O or 10 and O that team was pretty good. Um, they just weren't very good on offense. 
this team, this team should be better on offense than that team. That team was also, I don't want to say smoke and mirrors, but you remember the turnover chain and, and how much that played a part in it. That um, team did not have the firepower this team has offensively. DR King is way better than what they had at quarterback. Uh, Mike Harley is a really good receiver. You add, if Rambo is as good as they think he's going to be, um, that's really good. Now they lost Brevin Jordan, but they still have Will Mallory, who's a good, solid tight end behind him. And they have running backs. It's like, you know, again, I they're not like, I don't want to dare touch the is Miami back because we're not having that conversation for a long time. But I do think that this is a better team potentially than we've seen from Miami in a while, just because of the depth numbers that they've added. I think the interesting, and look, this is the comparison everybody's making in the comments is with UNC. Cause I have UNC lower than that. Um, it'll be an interesting reflection of Miami's program. If they ended up, you know, not in the ACC title game and, and UNC does instead because Miami back in the day, right. Was the program that always reloaded. They haven't been that program in a while. I'm more down on UNC than some people, because I, I don't think, you know, the, the, you know, the numbers of people of guys, they return is pretty high, but the guys, they lost a pair of running backs who combined for over 2000 yards last season, two receivers that combined for almost 2000 yards. I just, Mac Brown's recruited well, but I just, I guess I'm a little skeptical that they are the kind of program can, that can lose that much firepower and not miss a beat. If they do good for them. Um, but that would not speak well for Miami that UNC, the Mac Brown could come in and basically turn them into that kind of program in a couple years. And Miami has been trying to get back to being that kind of program for 15 years more. I think um, my two cents on this, I think you are selling North Carolina a little short. That seems I, to be the consensus of everybody but me. <laughs> that's okay. I mean, look, yeah. this is this is the offseason. Well, I they do have a great quarterback. Nobody could deny that. Yeah, and I think Ty Chandler will fit in well. He's versatile. He's I think he's a good he's a good back. He's not quite as good as the one who left Tennessee to go to Oklahoma, but I think he's a good back. Um, and they they have a bunch of guys who played a lot on defense. So I think they'll still be I think they'll still be really good. Um, I get it. I mean, they had four high profile guys, skill guys leave. The most important ones stayed, and that's the quarterback. Um, he didn't have a choice. No, I get it. I'm just saying, like. I think they are, I don't know if I would have had them in the top eight, but I would have had them somewhere, if I did it, somewhere around like nine through 12, I think. I also took some flack for not having USC in the top 25. My Pac-12 teams are Oregon at uh, 10, and then Utah, who I think also had a great um, transfer portal. What are we going to call this? Grand Transfer portal uh, success rate? Free agent market. Uh, free agent market. I mean, Charlie Brewer is a great, great pickup for them at quarterback. So I have them in. I have um, Arizona State. Our our Arizona State writer, Doug Haller, and he's by no means an ASU homer, is very, very high on them. I'm still – I'm not ready to to go all in just yet, but I have them in the top 25. I don't have USC in the top 25. They're my – they would probably be my number three or maybe even number four team in the South. You saw them up close. Am I crazy? I think they're a, probably a top 25 team because they have one of the best defensive players on the West Coast in Drake Jackson. Um, they have one of the best receivers in the country in Drake London. 
They have one of the best quarterbacks in the country in Keaton Slovis. They have pretty good running backs. Their offensive line needs work. Um, but just because of some of the difference makers I think they have, and they have a bunch of dudes in the front seven, I, I think they're a top – I think they would be around 20 for me. You know, like, again, here's an interesting thing, and I don't think this is like – you know, it goes back to your Georgia. I mean, you're – all in on JT Daniels. I think anybody who coached at USC, I'm not saying they're the only ones that would be like, wait, you guys are raving about JT Daniels and you're disregarding Keaton Slovis. Something doesn't add up there. It's not about those quarterbacks. I mean, they're no, both, but I mean, no, that is, I, I, J, uh, first of all, JT Daniels has, is going to be got a lot more around him uh, in the team he's on. And secondly, I don't think he, I actually don't think. He doesn't have – there's nobody – he will not have a better receiver than the one Slovis will throw to. I think – I mean, just in terms of – I'm not saying defensively, yes, JT Daniels has better players. And offensive, offensive line. His offensive, offensive line will be better. Um, his receivers will not be better. I, I would agree with that. I um, think but – but most importantly of all, I think uh, JT Daniels' team is a lot better coached than USC's team. And so, so that's part of the description. It's not. That's me being uh, silent and silently agreeing with you. By the way, I, I, I don't. I think Keaton Slovis. I mean, I <laughs> Keaton Slovis is probably a better quarterback than JT Daniels. Uh, but I mean, I just don't think their teams, like they're not really in the same neighborhood. Uh, you know, the question with JT Daniels is he good enough to beat Alabama in the SEC championship? Is he good enough to beat Clemson in the first game of the season? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if he's there yet. I cannot wait to see that Clemson Georgia game. Yeah. Not because I think one thing or the other, I just want to see it. Um, by the way, I, I don't know if I imagine this or not, but at some point on my timeline, I could have sworn I saw somebody tweet at both me and you saying, you guys are really high on Clay Helton or sort of very, like it was something about like that they, we were Clay Helton defenders. And my, when I saw that, it kind of stopped me. And I was like, where I think maybe that might come from is because I've said, I think Clay Helton's a really you know, if you rank decent guys as head coaches, that's what all think, everybody says. Yeah. Um, but I, I remember I, when was that? I don't know. I think it was because if, if possible, it might've been a couple of years ago and this is probably three or four years ago before I did the top 25 coaches. I remember you did at one point have Clay Helton on there and this was back when Sam Darnold was winning, you know, like was yeah. good. Uh, that's the only thing I could think of. Cause I was like, is this person not listen to our podcast? Um, also so over the weekend, I tweeted, all you need to know about the state of USC football, they had one first round pick and a bunch of third day guys. I mean, that's what, that's what you would expect from a, a, a non blue blood, you know, Unfortunately USC, for them, you expect better than that. A couple of those defensive linemen. I think those guys would have been top 50 picks if they had stayed another year. Uh, I yeah. think Bailey would have been that. I think Tui Pelotu probably would have been that. And I felt like a couple of guys left before they should have, I think Talanohof, Talanoa Hufanga, if he has less uh, tread on the tire in terms of maybe an injury history, I think he definitely, he's a way better player than where he was drafted. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. 
You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Last thing I want to mention on top 25, there are some group of five teams that were already pretty good uh, last year, and they bring the whole team back. Louisiana is one of them. Coastal Carolina is one of them. And Liberty, I guess it's technically not a group of five, but we'll, we'll talk about them as if they are. Uh, Liberty, Hugh Freeze, they go 10 and one last year. 16 seniors opted to take the extra year. And Malik Willis, their quarterback, um, you know, you, you, you mentioned the 2022 early mock drafts that are coming out. Uh, Malik Willis is in almost all of them. You wrote a whole story about that. Tell us how he, the Auburn transfer became an early dark horse first round quarterback for next year. Yeah. So it was interesting when I was talking to one of the quarterback coaches in the NFL for this story, uh, really this draft confidential story, this guy said, you know, the quarterback crop coming up next year does not look that great. And he basically said, you know, last, you know, last year you knew Trevor was coming out. You knew Justin Fields was coming out. And by that point, we had a, we didn't know if Trey Lance was coming out, but we knew he was there. So you had two guys you knew were top five caliber quarterbacks. He said, when you look at this group, you know, like some people like Sam Howell, some are not so sure. Keaton Slovis, some people like him, but he does have an injury history that gives them a little pause. Um, this person was a little skeptical of, of Matt Corral. There's some good and there's some bad there when people dig into it. He said, the Liberty kid has a cannon for an arm and can really run. And he's, there's some wow to him. And I was like, really? Like I, I, I knew Malik Willis um, was a playmaker. I did not, you know, what his arm was. I didn't really know that the extent of the wow factor to it, because when he, when he left Auburn, there were people there who were like, yeah, he can't throw. And then you start talking to coaches. So I started calling, I called the defensive coordinator at Coastal Carolina, who obviously, as you know, they played BYU and held BYU to 17 points. And they played uh, Liberty in the bowl game. And he said, you know, I thought we had a good defense and Malik Willis single-handedly beat us. Mm -hmm. You know, he's got a cannon for an arm. You can't tackle him. He's like playing an NFL running back. Um even the game that he did not, the, his worst game of the year was against NC State. And I talked to Tony Gibson, the defensive coordinator there. And he was like, he scared you to death watching him on film. We did some things scheme-wise that we thought were good. Um, you know, and they were able to give him some problems. Everybody else, you know, like, and I think when NFL scouts look at who these quarterbacks are going to be, I think the things they look at, one of them is, is there some special trait this guy has? And with him, you know, he's a really, really dynamic runner. The story went up on Sunday, and I heard from another guy who's a who's a, now a Power Five coordinator who was like, two best quarterbacks I faced were Zach Wilson and Malik Willis. I mean, the arm is is eye popping. And then Quincy Avery, who's the private quarterback coach, who's worked with Deshaun Watson and worked with Justin Fields, 
and coached Trey Lance for a while. And Trey Lance had the strongest arm in this draft. Quincy Avery said there's no comparison. Malik Willis has by far the best arm of anybody he's been around. He's never seen anybody who can throw it like Malik Willis. So now how does he translate in terms of Freeze's offense is very RPO heavy. Uh, that doesn't mean you know, you're making a lot of decisions in the middle of that, but it's just there's going to be some transition there. But he is definitely a, an interesting one to watch. And I think as long as Freeze is there, they're going to be good on offense. It's just um, – what is the evaluation going to look like for the NFL as they get through that? If Malik Willis is as, as you know, supremely talented as you just described him, what does that say about Gus Malzahn that he wasn't the starting quarterback there that Bo Nix was, who I know was a big time recruit and a legacy kid there. And it probably would have been hard to keep him on the bench, but you know, at this point in his career, I don't think has lived up to that hype. Two, two things on that. The first um, in Malzahn's defense our buddy Andy Staples did a story on Malik Willis probably like seven months ago. And Willis talked about he didn't work uh, he didn't work as hard as he needed to when he was there, just in terms of maturity. Now, like the the everybody's worked with him now really speaks about how coachable he is. But I think at that point he was not ready to be the guy. Now, the flip side of that is one of the coaches I talked to said if he's still the quarterback there and he worked the way he is now, um, Gus might still be there right that talented and the question though is there are different pass concepts in Gus's offense and this is like I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of whether you know he was the perfect hire for UCF or not but run game wise yes which you you know pass game wise there's some other things in that offense that were really lacking and so I just think he's getting um Hugh Freeze has had a good run with quarterbacks Ryan Applin was was a record-setting quarterback for him Bo Wallace put up big numbers at Ole Miss and beat an Alabama team, you know, and so he's had a bet. He has, you know, a better track record with quarterbacks than, than Gus does. So, so we did hear for months how the 2021 quarterback draft class was so much better. You know, you better get your quarterback now because next year's is not that good. And yet uh, Dane Brugler's 2022 mock draft, and I trust his evaluation skills more than, you know, pretty much anybody else doing these has Spencer Rattler, number one, Sam Howell, number two, Malik Willis, number six, and JT Daniels, number 10. So four in the top 10. I've seen others that had um, Desmond Ritter, the Cincinnati quarterback, very high. He is not in Dane's uh, top 32. I have to admit, I was a little surprised to see him on those other lists. But anyway, the point is, I don't know if this is a reflection of like, just, you know, the assumption that if the teams that finish, you know, that, that are bad enough next year to have a number one or number two pick are going to need a quarterback. But, you know, the hype train starts now yeah, for Rattler, for Howell, for these guys in the same way that, uh, you know, that, that last year's guys had. Yeah, I, I, it is interesting to see. It's, it's one of those things where people go out there. I'll be honest, I was surprised to see a couple of these mock drafts and I'm not sure if it's just like okay this guy was a five star three years ago and he put up good numbers for you know whatever and then all of a sudden he gets you know the treatment um because we've seen that I, you know this this time like two years ago I remember one of the mock drafts had Jake Fromm as a top 10 pick I mean if you asked anybody around Georgia they're like there's no way that kid has the arm to be a top 10 yeah not all mock drafts are created equal. Um, as you're, if you're perusing the internet and seeing a bunch of these early ones, I would be cautious about 
is the person doing them a somebody who knows how to evaluate film, which Dane does, or is this person basically just looking at somebody else's list or I don't know, rivals two, four, seven. And, and cause there are some definitely guys that I'm like, yeah, this person, if you actually watched film of this guy from last season, you would not have him in your first round. Let's do a little exercise. Give me your I, call up Dane's list and I will do the same. And you give me the five guys you think have the best chance to be top 15 picks. Well, I think the no brainer is Kayvon Thibodeau. Um, you know, Tim DeRuiter is their DC now. He coached Vaughn Miller at Texas A&M. He speaks of Thibodeau in the same as being in the same, you know, talent level as, as Vaughn Miller, which is a pretty big statement. Uh, Derek Stingley, I think is a, is a pretty sure thing. You never, I mean, injuries would be the only thing that would, would obviously affect this, but um, I think Kyle Hamilton, the Notre Dame safety is a pretty sure thing. I mean, I'm not sure any of these quarterbacks are truly a sure thing. If Justin Fields is capable of slipping to what was it, 11th, mm-hmm. um, then certainly any of these quarterbacks could as well. Um, so far, we are three for three. The, you've given me three names, and I'm in 100% agreement in them. Now I'm starting to get a little less confident. Um, I would say if you go down to his number, wait, am I? Do they have to be guys he has in the top 15? They don't. Okay. Well, Christian Harris, he has 14. I think he's a stud. Uh, the linebacker from Alabama. Um, there's nobody else that I would say absolutely positively this guy's going to go in the top 15. What about you? Okay. So I have, I have one uh, I'm very confident will be a top 15, if not like a top five pick or a top six pick. And that is Dane's number nine guy, Evan Neal. I think he's the Alabama guy who's the no-brainer here. Um, if if Alex Leatherwood goes top 20, this guy should go in a, in a different draft. This guy should go top six at worst. Um, and then it's one of two guys, I would say. You know, I, I think Drake Jackson's a terrific player. I could see him being a top 15 pick. The other one is DeMarvin Leal. Uh, from Texas A&M is just really super explosive. I think he is exactly what Jimbo needed to get there. Those two guys are different kinds of defensive linemen, but I would put those as the sure things. I mean, to me, um, you know, those other guys, I don't, I don't want to say they're no brainers, but like Stingley would have been the best cornerback in this draft. He would have been the best cornerback in last year's draft. I think, um, you know, Thibodeau, I want to see, you know, just how he continues to develop because everything else I've seen, you know, is exactly in line with what you said too. love Kyle Hamilton's uh, explosiveness, love his range, all those things. He's really smart. Um, you know, the one thing that's a, kind of a, and I want to point this out and not related to anybody I just mentioned is sometimes people will say, why did so-and-so fall? And I started seeing this and the, some of it I knew just from talking to people for that confidential story is, well, probably it's because of the medical. It's either because of the medical or for for um, character issues they were taken off the bo- team's board. But that's sometimes when that happens. You're like, yeah. Um, or people, you know, people heard a lot about Dylan Moses when he was coming up. He was a five-star guy. He played a lot of football but had an injury history. Was never quite the athlete after the injury initially. Um, I feel like he was on track to be that kind of guy. And then, unfortunately, injury injury cost him a season. And then he just wasn't. He just didn't have the same kind of burst. Yeah. And his injury history, he was off like the, one of the teams I talked to, he was off their board. 
Um, you had some of those guys, uh, Trey Smith, health issues, you know, another one where injury history, where health history was a concern. So, and my point on that is some of these guys, like Slovis isn't on this list, um, on Dane's list. He definitely has the talent where he could be a first round pick, but again, I don't know where he's going to be on the, the medical history, um, of that. So one other guy I was going to ask you, the one quarterback you did not mention, and he's at a program where they had a really nice first year under Jeff Halfley, but Phil Jerkovic, Notre Dame fans will remember him. I remember seeing him coming out of high school and he had, I watched, uh, somebody showed me his film and I watched it. I was like, wow, he's really talented. I liked him. And then he really struggled there. I think he struggled with Chip Long, who was the OC at the time and had a good first year at his new school. Um, Give me the ceiling for you. We've talked about North Carolina. We've talked about certainly about Clemson and Miami. Um, where do you think BC could be? Is this a team on the rise or is this a team? Because they were so – felt like the, all the time under Adazio, they were like six and six, seven and five. And But before he was there, BC used to be – like every couple of years, BC would have like a top 15 kind of season. Yeah, I have to uh, – um... I have to defend the Eagles here. I feel like, I don't know, everybody has short-term memory. And I mean, when Matt Ryan was at BC, they were the number two team in the country at one point. They played in back-to-back ACC title games. Obviously, they have history. They have Doug Flutie. Like, it's too early to say, is Jeff Halfley going to be the guy to, to, to pull that off? But there's no question. I mean, they're in, they're in Clemson's division. That's not great, right? But in terms of just overall standing in the ACC, there's no reason why BC can't be one of the top three or four programs in the conference with the right coach. I know, no doubt. I totally agree. They have a lot to sell there. Um, yeah, it's just crazy because, like, I, I don't know if Adazio ever won more than seven games. And if you look back, like, what's cr- what's crazy, and this is probably a, a story we should do at some point, is like Jeff Jagodzinski, twenty and eight, in his two years there. Now there was off-field issues. But then before that, like, um, again, Adazio never did better than seven and six at a place where Tom O'Brien last six years, nine wins, nine wins, nine wins, eight wins, nine wins, eight wins before he left. Um, you know, it's just like I think people forget um, how – and granted, it's a little of that O'Brien stuff was in the Big East, which was an easier conference than what the ACC is. But the last couple of years were not. They were in the ACC. So, um, I don't know. I, I think if, if Jerkovic, and I'm not saying he's going to have the Doug Flutie-like impact, but they've had a history of some, as you mentioned, Matt Ryan, when they have had a really big, big, big-time quarterback, they've been really good. So, maybe that's, one, maybe that's a dark horse for us to keep an eye on. There's one thing I want – we were going to do the mailbag here in a second. There's one thing I want to bring up with you that's definitely going to like um, – it might get you pretty ticked off. But um, – there was a so we're talking thinking back to the draft this weekend. Okay. Alabama, you know, as good as they've been under Saban, they had never had six first round picks before this this draft. I noted, I, I counted it up, and um, nine, uh, sorry, sixteen guys who played in the twenty nineteen Alabama LSU game haven't gone on to become first round picks. Derek Stingley will probably be number seventeen next year, and and Evan Neal would probably be number eighteen. Yeah. So the gold standard for you and for a lot of people of the most talented college football team they've ever seen has always been the uh, 2001 Miami team. If, if Dane's early projections here hold true, 
and obviously it's it's very early. Um, Alabama would have five more first round picks this coming year on top of the six they had last year and the four they had the year before that. So now you're talking, uh, doing the math here, uh, 15 first round picks off the 2019 team that actually didn't make the playoff. Um, though I think things might've turned out differently if Tua doesn't get hurt. I mean, is it time for us to maybe evaluate that? And I don't know which team exactly you would say, but one of these recent Alabama teams may turn out to be the most talented team. May. I mean, look, if you look at, um, Here's what Miami had going for it. Miami had the best defensive player in college football at that point in Ed Reed. I think that gave them, and they had really good linebackers and they had a good defensive line. Um, they had one great receiver, one. I guess at the end of it, Alabama had one great receiver because Jalen Waddell missed half the season. So you had that. Um, Miami had a great tight end in Shockey. Alabama's offensive line was much better. I think Dorsey was a really good quarterback. Mac Jones was a better quarterback, right? Um, you know, it's an interesting, like, I think Miami will have a legacy of some of the pros. It's going to be hard to, to, you know, you have Hall of Famers there. I don't know. It's time is going to tell on what that was, but Alabama dominated a season that was hard to dominate because of the pandemic. They were in a better conference. Um so it's definitely to me they have the best argument like the most talented team of all time isn't the Miami team and it's not this team if you look just on what they what their legacy was like I did that story on that 79 USC team that has four pro football hall of famers like you're not getting I I'd be shocked if anybody got near the talent level that they had right cuz you had some of the best players who've ever you know Anthony Munoz is the best offensive lineman the NFL has ever seen you know, mm -hmm. but they didn't win. You know, they it was in a different era. They had a tie in there and then they didn't get it. You know, it's like they they were not able to get voted number one. Um, so it's an interesting discussion. I mean, I think Alabama could certainly make a claim more than a lot of these other teams that have won championships. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like the 2017 Alabama team that beat Georgia in the national title game has now had 17 first round picks, which ties the 2001 Miami team, but I think you're right that you can't, you can't just base it on draft picks. You have to wait and see like, will they, will that team or this era end up producing, you know, the Ed Reeds of, yeah. of this generation? Like, I don't think, I don't, I think Alabama had a much better offensive line. I think Alabama had a better quarterback. I think the running backs are pretty comparable. Um, I think receiver wise, if you factor in Jeremy Shockey and Andre Johnson, Andre Johnson, if you remember that national title game, just absolutely just destroyed yep. the DBs across from him. Um, Miami's better in the front seven. I think Miami's defense was better. Um, you know, I think they had three first round picks in the secondary. Um, the linebackers, two of them were first round picks. They're just, I think it was just a faster defense, but. I mean, this yeah. This Again, was not, I, this is the best offense Alabama's had by far. 
I don't think it's the best defense Alabama's had, you know, personally. Yeah, like I said, I don't even know necessarily that I'm talking specifically about the 2020 team or any of these individual, like I'm not sure which of these teams you would point to and say, this was the most talented Alabama team. I just know that this run they're on right now. Oh, it's they, they just had yeah, four yeah, in the, yeah, in the span of two years, they had four receivers <laughs> go in the top 15. Four top 15 receivers were playing at the same time in, uh, 2018 and 2019 Najee Harris first rounder as well was the running back. And how often does a team have two, this two straight starting quarterbacks in back-to-back years go in the top 15. So just the collection of talent on offense. I mean, I have to, I mean, we'd have to, it's probably unprecedented. We would have to dig through the record books, but yeah, you're right. Like Alabama, you know, a decade ago, their first rounders are coming primarily from defense. It's completely flipped. Yeah, look, I mean, I don't know who makes the argument that Nick Saban's not the greatest. Like, it's not even an argument, the greatest football coach in college football history. Like, I don't even know. Like, to me, now the gap is wider. Like, I, um, the last football game you and I covered in person, real game, not a spring game, was that um, Clemson, uh, Clemson LSU game, right? And mm-hmm. I remember doing... I think it was the jocks uh, guys show in Birmingham the night, the day of the national title game. And I could have sworn one of them, I think it's you, Jim Dunaway had said, if Clemson wins, does Dabo become the best seen as the best uh, coach in the country? And it was a fair, I guess it was a fair question to ask because he would have had three. Oh yeah. It was absolutely a fair question to ask. Um, The reality is Dabo is is a strong number two. But this, you know, like big picture wise, it's not even close with Saban and, and like small picture wise is not even close with Saban. Because right now, I mean, what they're doing is just again, and we could talk about this every every week. So I probably, you know, you led me down the road. Here, <laughs> but It's a good benchmark to talk about what, um, you know, just kind of awed by what Nick Saban has done, especially when his coaching staff changes constantly. And it turns out to be a turns out to be a, um, a strength, not a weakness. What he has done, and I don't want to belabor this, but what he has done is he has perfected the art of recruiting and development. You know, lots of schools recruit five-star kids. They don't all turn them all into, you know, NFL first-round players. Alabama's hit rate year after year after year is insane. And I think that speaks to the whole operation. I mean, everybody talks about all the analysts and all the -the behind-the-scenes guys. That does make a difference in terms of, their, I just think their evaluation process is is basically almost flawless. And then, of course, once they get there, they got to de- they got to develop them up. You know, I mean, Texas signed top three classes under Tom Herman. They're not that's not showing up on on draft day. Um, I think it's something also to the culture because the ones who don't uh, they because they definitely have had five stars that have not panned out at all, but. I think it's because there are so many guys and it is just this kind of, I don't call it a meat grinder program, but just where the competitiveness is so high to get into, you know, get onto the field for not just special teams reps. I think that adds to it a lot. And so you also have this culture where years ago, and I'm even trying to remember the running back who was, um, it was like, it was like coffee, maybe who was like the first one. It was like, okay, this is how we do things. And then all of a sudden it just gets passed down to, you know, it goes from, from Mark Ingram to TJ Yeldon. And there's somebody in between and there's another guy. And it's just like, this is how we do it in the running back room. And I think that 
is different than it is at a lot of schools now when you have so much turnover. And it's not to like, like what year has it been when Alabama did not have a running back who was really good, right? It's not it's like when there's been that drop off because we see, you know, we see it at other programs where, okay, this is what happened. And, you know, it's not to say like, it's those positions. There isn't the drop off at running back. There isn't the drop off. Like there is, you know, when have they really had a terrible offensive line, right? Some of those things or whatever. Yeah. There's been other times where like these defensive backs or there hasn't, you know, there was like, they went to Quinnen Williams and Quinnen Williams was better than the guys before him. And then Quinnen Williams left. And I don't feel like it's quite, you know, like there was no Quinnen Williams. Christian Barmore is a good player, but he wasn't quite at that level. But with the running backs, it's like, that's pretty insane that they're able to do that. And it's like, you know, one of the best players in the NFL, um, Alvin Kamara was there and he was there with like three other great yeah. players. So he ended up going to junior college and going to Tennessee. It's just, you know, that's, that's the place. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing with the culture is is a lot is you know parallels a lot the, what you described in Kane Mutiny you know in terms of the standard that was set at Miami and the NFL guys that would come back and demand it the difference is it didn't last know, for it didn't last years. for yeah, yeah 12 it 13 years for a half dozen years or five years and then you know what guys in that room and I remember you know after we were at that Fiesta Bowl when they lost to Ohio State one of the things that came up a lot was the guys in here, some of these guys didn't build this, meaning like they don't know what it took to get to this point. I remember some of the Miami players saying that. And the reality is, you know, the Alabama guys get recruited. They, it's like, they're able to, you know, like Urban Myers were de-recruit. They're able to get to that point um, with them, not with every kid, but with most of them. And I feel like, or with many of them, and I feel like it just becomes relatively on the surface seamless. Whereas Miami couldn't, you know, yeah. just would not keep lightning in the bottle the way that Nick Saban has been able to do. Okay, Stu, back to the podcast in a second. But now a word from our sponsor, LinkedIn Talent Solutions. When you are hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just a jobs board. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within the first 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. LinkedIn knows that small businesses are wearing so many hats and might not have the time or resources to hire. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. 2.5 million small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash audible. That's linkedin.com slash audible to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. 
Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. All right, let's get to some mailbag questions. As always, you can send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. Nathan in Boulder. Bruce and Stu, football offenses have exploded in the last decade to the point where 49-42 games are barely noteworthy. What are the chances that there is backlash against wide open offenses and some rule changes to slow them down or are 70 to 63 games in regulation going to become the future? So the one rule change that I'm sure a lot of defensive coaches would like is like the NFL lineman downfield rule, because that is a headache for them with RPOs and different things. I don't, some of these things are harder to officiate for college officials now too, though. I don't, I don't see it reversing, Stu. I just don't because like, look how some of the things that they legislate contact and the physicality of football that plays well for offense too. And so I just think, you know, you have, you have first of all you have all the seven on seven stuff and quarterbacks and receivers and running backs come in way more ready to hit the ground running in those kind you know in that kind of uh style of play but you also have defensive players now where there's a little bit of hesitation about how am I going to play full speed am I going to hit this guy am I going to get thrown out of the game I think that factors into it too and I just don't know how you unwind that so I think nathan has a good question i mean do you do you do you see any way it changes you remember 15 to 20 years ago ish when the nba got rid of the hand check rule and what a huge effect that had on how this the the difference between that and where we are with college football is that that was to correct something that had become very unpopular right the style of basketball when it was the, the pat riley knicks or um you know, uh, who else kind of personified that? The Heat during that time. There were a lot of like, and the NBA had become a lot of like 86 to 84 games and the fans didn't like it. So that rule change was an attempt to make basketball more exciting again. And it worked. It led to the era we're in now with Steph Curry and all these, these great players. Um, fans like touchdowns. I don't think there's going to be some sort of demand or outcry to make the games low scoring again, that would lead to those rule changes. So no, I don't see that happening. I, I think the RPO one is a fair one, but I don't even necessarily know how much that would change things. You know, like let's not forget the NFL has become much more high scoring too. It's just, it's just the way football is going. It has no, I, it's interesting. You talk about perceptions. Like I was thinking about this. Um, there was a game you referenced on the podcast last week or maybe two weeks ago. It was that Washington-Utah game in the Pac-12 title game, and you said how unwatchable it was. Right. And I was uh, the sideline reporter for that game, and I'm on the field, and it was one of the most physical games I was at. It was a lot of fun. That was a 10-3 to game, and the touchdown, I think it was Byron Murphy was the defensive back who had a pick six, and that was the only, the only touchdown of the game. But – um, most people I think would agree with you. They don't want to see defensive football. They don't necessarily want to see like a slug fest. 
Um, they want to see some version of seven-on-seven football. Now, they may not say it just like that, but I think those are the things that they look back and see. It's like it turns into um, – I don't know if they necessarily want Mahomes versus Mayfield, which is like, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people in college football, other than big 12 fans recoiled at that. Cause they thought it was bad football. But then once it started turning into Joe Burrow, lighting up yeah. everybody in the LSC, LA, you know, in the sec and then Mac Jones and, and uh, Alabama started doing it. Um, you know, they had a different taste for it. Yeah. I mean, that's the key, right? It's become, it used to be an easy thing to mock the big 12 for games that where there was no defense. Uh, it's funny. He used the score score 70 to 63. I don't know if that was a coincidence, but I always think of the, I remember that that was the score of a Baylor West Virginia game. Um, might've been West Virginia's first year in the big 12. And everybody was like, what a mockery of the sport this was, you know, it was touch football. And uh, but no, it's hit it's hit the premier conference in the country now too. I think the only league left that's kind of a throwback is the big 10. Uh, especially the Big Ten West. If you want to see football the way it was played in 1986, you can tune in to a Iowa-Wisconsin game. Um, but in general, I mean, just look at the, what we just talked about earlier with, the, with Alabama and turning out four top 15 receivers. Like that's just what th- – that's where the players, in high, you know, the players coming out of high school want to play. We were talking about the fans. That's also the kind of football that the recruits want to play. Um they're going to be attracted to programs that throw the ball 50 times and, and put up a lot of points. All right, Stu. Next question is from Tom McHale in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Stu and Bruce factoring in all aspects of college football today, the playoff, instant replay, current power programs, parity, rules, money, conference structure, recruiting, transfer rules, et cetera. Is college football, quote unquote, better today than it's ever been? And if so, why? And if not, when was the golden age and why? Please your, use your own definition of better for the sake of a more robust discussion. Thank you, Tom. We That's a great this. question. I, I gave it a lot of thought last night after I saw it. Um, I don't think we are in the golden age of college football right now. I don't think it's particularly healthy to have the same four or five programs dominating it. And um, now I do think that everybody is always going to be nostalgic for a certain period of college football based on their age. Right. Like to me, it's like you, music, right? Yeah. If you, you know, like the mid nineties will always be like the golden age of college football to me personally, because of that's when I was really getting into it. I think, you know, somebody else might point to the sixties or seventies. I don't know. I will say this. I was thinking about this and I'm, I'm curious your answer. So we, we've, we've both been covering the sport since the late nineties, early 2000. I was like, what is the, my favorite season that I've covered? If you could, if you could create a perfect college football season, what would it be? And my answer is the 2005 season that led to the Texas USC Rose bowl, because you had this season long storyline of is USC, the greatest team ever. And they almost got beat several times, including the famous Notre Dame game. Notre Dame's emergence that year was a big storyline. Uh, Penn State had been really, you know, really bad. And Joe, people are urging Penn State, Joe Paterno to retire. And they rose up that year and won the Big Ten. Um, Ohio State was really good that year. Um, just like if you're crafting a season and you want teams that are great teams from different parts of the country. Um, and then just like the drama and the build up to that last game. Uh I don't know if that's the, if, if that's would be universally seen as the golden age of college football, but I do really appreciate that 
era, as much as people load the BCS, sometimes it worked. Hmm. Uh, that's an interesting thought. For me, I totally agree with you about the not good to have the same three teams or really the same two teams kind of dominating for an extended period of time. I just feel like that falls flat. Um, it just kind of, I don't know. It's a tough sell. That's uh, why we're headed. That's why we're heading toward a bigger playoff. Um, if you ask me yeah. like what was, I don't know. One of my favorite seasons was actually that 2010 season. Um, and it's weird because now that I look at the, the top four, it's some random teams, uh, Auburn, Oregon, TCU, Stanford, right? That was um, the final top four that year. Yes. Alabama is not even in the top 15. You know, who's in the top 15, Nevada, <laughs> um, <laughs> with Kaepernick, yeah, with Kaepernick, Missouri was 12. Boise state was 10. By the way, Arkansas was eight. That, that was, was a, eight. that was a, that was a. That was an interesting season, though it was marred a little bit. I mean, I, I loved the Boise State storyline that year. I was at the Boise State Nevada game. You obviously had the, the the Cam Newton Iron Bowl, but I do think the Cam Newton scandal it just kind of put a dark cloud over the last month or so of that season. But other than, but in terms of the actual football, I, you're right. That was a very fun season. Yeah, I mean, I just thought also like I thought Boise State. Um, I don't know. I know you didn't love this part of it. It's, I, sometime but i thought boise state became such a polarizing topic that it made things kind of national that like you could tell people in the sec were kind of like chafed by boise state getting credit but i thought they were good and they you know there was something about that that i thought made it um you know made it more interesting you had a lot of teams that just looking back that were not kind of the teams we even see now that were that were good then um if i'm not mistaken there was a three or four week period there where the number one team lost each week like ohio state was number one and they lost to wisconsin and oklahoma was number one and they lost to maybe missouri um yeah that was a good one so um I also like the 2012 season even though the championship game was anticlimactic with alabama blowing out notre dame um, you had Johnny Manziel. That was the year of Johnny Manziel. That was the year of that one Saturday in November when both Oregon and Kansas State, they were one and two, and they both lost to big underdogs. So I know this is not exactly what he was looking for in terms of like us saying what, what was the golden age, but I don't know. It's just a little bit easier to pick out specific seasons. All right, last one, Bruce, from Michael Galvin in Agora Hills, California. He asked this before the draft, but it turned out to be true. With Chase, Sewell, Parsons, and Slater all about to be drafted very highly, do you think this will make an impact on players opting out for future seasons? So these are guys who opted out due to COVID, didn't play last season, didn't seem to affect their draft stock. Does that mean we will see a similar thing this year? I don't think so. I think this was COVID was a unique situation. If you had players opting out for a whole year, I think you would have people more questioning their competitiveness and everything that goes with that. I really don't. And there were a couple of players who it did impact their stock. I mean, if you know, it's hard to say what if Greg Russo comes back for 2020 and plays, Greg Russo might be top 10 pick. You know, Daniel Jeremiah, who I respect a ton as a draft evaluator, you know, had him a lot higher than where he ended up going when when uh, Rousseau opted out. He was a he was really a one year player who a lot of people 
in the NFL world were still trying to figure out what is he going to become. They liked them. They just, you know, they just didn't know him. You know, in each individual case here, and we'll look at the four guys. Let's start with Slater from your alma mater. He had great tape from against the best play, defensive player in the draft the previous year, Chase Young, and that helped. And you took about Parsons, his last game. Um, the, the NFL coaches I talked to could not stop gushing about. They said it was one of the best games they'd seen a linebacker play. It was the last game he played, which was against Memphis in the bowl game. Parsons is also like an insane physical specimen. You just don't – there aren't Michael Parsons every year. Um, Jamar Chase – won a national title in his last year, had one of the greatest seasons a college receiver's ever played. He also torched a first-round pick in the biggest, you know, in the national title game. And then you had uh, Panay Sewell, who I think also, not quite like Parsons athletically, but again, I think those are four fairly unique cases in a unique situation. Will you have one guy maybe opt out and then maybe not hurt them? Possibly. I just don't think you'd have a bunch of them be able to do that and still people factor into it and go, okay, we're, we're still buying in on the guy. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a very small, I mean, you know, those guys you mentioned were basically, I don't want to say they were finished products, but they had, like you said, they had put enough on tape that not playing another season, there was still enough, right? That's the difference between them and, and frankly, most draft prospects. So like, you know, going back to the Thane's 2022 list, I mean, if, for example, Derek Stingley opted out this year, I think he would probably still be a very high draft pick yes, because people yep. have seen what they need to see from him. Um, probably your guy, Evan Neal would fit into that category, but I wouldn't say that of most of the guys on Dane's list. So, um, and you're right. There would probably be, Hey, you know, we gave everybody a pass last year because of COVID and very difficult circumstances. If you chose to skip your whole junior season, just, just to not play, just to protect your body. Would there be a, you know, this guy doesn't love football enough storyline? I mean, look, there's a defensive back I can think of who is a good player who some people thought was a second round pick. And he played last year. And some of the word was that they thought he was playing to protect himself a little bit uh, and wasn't as physical as he was in 2019. And that guy ended up as a mid, you know, as probably as a, uh, a third day pick. And they thought just some of that. So sometimes it's like, do you have bad film? Like, I'd be curious as if Sean Wade opted out, where would he have got drafted? I mean, not to, to belabor it, but he had put out some really bad film in 2020. And so, you know, that might be a case where maybe it would have benefited him uh, to not do it. But, you know, again, there's definitely, I feel like there's more times than not it didn't work that way. I mean, I felt bad for Chuba Hubbard. I feel like if he had come out after his 2000 yard season, he would not have been a fourth round running back. He came back last season and just wasn't the same guy. I don't know. Yeah. Running backs are hard to, to get agreed on. I mean, I think there was some question about his physicality um, a little bit. And I think that's, you know, there's just not a lot of, uh, there's not the same value the NFL puts on running backs as they did 10 years ago. And certainly 20 years ago. Random trivia from, from our friend Max Olson, and I didn't realize this. Bryce Love and then uh, Chuba Hubbard are the only two guys to ever run for 2,000 yards and come back the next season voluntarily. They're, you know, Jonathan Taylor, I think, might have done it, but he couldn't come out yet. And both of them got hurt the next year, and their draft stack was never the same. And unfortunately, Bryce Love, that one year was unbelievably exciting to watch. He's just never been able to get back to that. 
um, with all the injuries. So running back, man, I mean, good for Travis Etienne. I, I remember when he came back, we were like, is he real? Is he real? Like, what can he do possibly to improve his stock? But he got a second round grade and he came back and he went in the first round. Good for him. Unfortunately, it can work the other way with some of those running backs. All right. Well, we appreciate your questions. As always, send your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com. Stu, what else am I missing? Subscribe to the athletic, theathletic.com slash the audible $3.99 a month. That's 20% off. My goodness, if you listen to this whole episode and you haven't subscribed yet, you have no idea what those articles we were talking about were. So theathletic.com slash the audible. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.